Over the last several months, I realized that I have probably said this somewhat frequently, but I think it's worth saying again. Myself and the other leaders on our leadership team here at Cross Connection Church, we are called to the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I have been reiterating this truth just as much as a reminder for myself as it is a perhaps redundant reminder for you as well. The Apostle Peter wrote in one of his letters in 2 Peter chapter 1, he wrote these words, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent or in this body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Now, I don't plan on leaving or dying anytime soon, but I still think that it is good for me as a pastor to remind you and perhaps to remind myself what it is that our purpose and our call is as church leaders. I will confess, I know that there have been times that I've lost sight of this very clear call. If you have been a part of this church for any length of time, it's likely that you know that these words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, that pastors and teachers and apostles, prophets and evangelists are given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. These words are the very words that God used in my life to call me into the ministry back in January of 1999, so quite a few years ago. So those words have an important place in my own life, personally. They, they are the very passage that when I was asked if I would begin teaching a Bible study here at this church, and I said, well, I'll pray about it. Those are the, those are the words from Ephesians chapter four that God spoke to me as I was reading through that passage. But these words are not only important to me personally, they should also be important words in the life of every pastor or every leader within the church. I bring this up because I know that there have been times in the last nearly 14 years of me serving as the senior pastor here at this church that I've lost sight of this very clear call, even though this is the passage that the Lord used in my life to bring me into the ministry. I would say that many pastors experience times where they kind of get distracted from their primary call of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. We can drift into thinking that our call is to build the church. Building the church is actually the work and the task of the Lord. He's the one who said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. It couldn't get any more explicit than that. But sometimes pastors kind of drift into this mindset where they think it's my responsibility to be the one building this church and coming up with all of the plans and kind of bring people in, all these sorts of things. So we can drift into thinking that that's our job. Or we can drift into thinking that our call is to plan out people's Christian lives, to be kind of like a spiritual guru that is directing all the, the activities of a person's life. That's certainly not what we're called to. But we can drift into thinking that our call is to be a spokesman on behalf of God to the culture. I've certainly run into or seen a number of people over the year that are years that are distracted by that thought that that's their call. Or we can drift into thinking that we are here to fix every issue or every problem that people have 
within their lives, within the body, the church. So um, people think that their pastors begin to think that they're kind of like the spiritual fix-it man who's got to come in and, you know, right every wrong and fix every problem. And that's not the call. You know, that's, that's the work of the Lord. In reality, we can begin to take on the task of being God or being the Holy Spirit in people's lives, in the church and sometimes even in the culture. But that really isn't the task that God has called us to. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes it very clear that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, some people call these the five offices of the church. There's debate and discussion among people if it's four actually or five. But I think really what Paul is doing there is he's kind of giving a comprehensive statement about leaders and teachers within the church. And he's saying that these leaders, they are given for the equipping of the saints. And if you're a Christian, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are what the Bible would call a saint. So the leaders within the church are here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We are here to help you to become ready to do the work of the ministry that God has called you to for the purpose of the church being built up. And the church is to be built up unto, we have a direction we're going to in, a goal or a purpose that we're pursuing. We want to grow up and be built up unto maturity, a maturity in Christ Jesus where we're united together. We are made one in Christ. So with all of that as a preface, I want to re return again to something that I've said a lot in this year, in 2021. As a pastor, I am somewhat grieved, um, you know, just being honest and, and looking over things in, in the church, not, not this church necessarily, but the churches that make up the body of Christ here in our culture. I am a little bit grieved and a little bit discouraged. I'm grieved and discouraged by the state of the church in our world today. And this grief, this discouragement, these emotions, they're, they're not really unique to me. I've probably had a half dozen or more conversations with other pastors in just the last few weeks. And these other pastors are all also expressing to me the same discouragement. We, the church, we're not united. And our division reveals the extent to which we might still be a little bit immature, that we are still carnal. So what's that all mean if we are still immature and still carnal? Well, it could mean a lot of different things, but one of the things that I think it does mean is that church leaders may have been a little bit distracted by other things that are not our primary call. Because if we were wholly committed to the call that's given there in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. If we were wholly committed to that call, then perhaps we would be a little bit more mature and we as the church would be a little bit more united at this cultural moment. Now, when I say that we as the church would be a little bit more united, I'm not saying necessarily that all of the churches that are here, say in North County, San Diego, would be united together in some ecumenical movement. I'm talking about the individual local churches. There's a lot of division and immaturity that I and many other church leaders are seeing within the individual local churches. And that's discouraging. It should be discouraging to us. And so all of that has been the, the basis for the teachings that I have given for the better part of this year, especially through the second half of 2021. We have gone through a series of teachings through the summer that I called First Things First, kind of laying the, the foundation, if you will, for a faith in God, that our trust and our faith in God is reasonable and rational. And then we've spent the last 
you know, six, eight weeks going through a series that I've been calling the Disciplines of a Disciple. And now as we approach the end of the year and the holiday, the Christmas season is coming up, I want to take an additional couple of weeks to add kind of a postscript an epilogue, if you will, to those thoughts that I've been giving um, in that series, First Things First, and in that series, The Disciplines of a Disciple. And this postscript is basically an answer to an important question that was posed by a great apologist and philosopher in the last century by the name of Francis Schaeffer. The question that Francis Schaeffer posed, it became the title of a book that he wrote, and it also became a title for a series of videos that he put together. And the question was, how shall we then live? I had the opportunity this last weekend to go up north to Santa Cruz and to speak at another church and to speak with a group of men at a men's conference or men's retreat. And I talked about this topic of how shall we then live. And I I went to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah to talk about it. But I've been thinking a lot about this question and this topic. It is a really big question. And it is a topic that is much bigger than what I will be giving to it over the next two weeks. So I'm quite certain that I'm probably going to return to this topic at various times over the next coming months. But as we have this little interlude between the last series that we did, The Disciplines of a Disciple, and our next series that we will be doing looking forward to Christmas, we've got a couple of weeks, kind of a gap here between these two, I want to share with you some of the things that I think are important for us as those who are living as Christians in an increasingly post-Christian and non-Christian culture. I'm sure you notice that the culture that we live in is increasingly kind of drifting away from Christian fundamentals and Christian belief. And so how shall we then live as Christians, if you are a Christian, living in the midst of that kind of a culture? It seems to me that there was a time in the not too distant past that you could have had kind of a a general expectation that people were going to, for the most part, treat you or interact with you in a way that was civil and ethical and moral. I believe that that moderate expectation that we would have that people would treat you, generally speaking, civilly and ethically and morally, it arose out of the fact that the world that we live in here in the West, so the United States, uh, say North America and Western Europe, Australia, other places like that. So in the Western world, this moderate expectation that we've had that in our culture, it really arose out of the fact that this culture for the better part of the last millennia and a half has been enculturated under a generically Christian worldview. The Western culture we live in has what is typically termed a Judeo-Christian underpinning. So the values, the principles, the ethics and morals, they are linked back to the Christian scriptures and are largely founded upon Christian thought and Christian theology. But we at this moment are witnessing the breakdown of civility and ethics and morality. And This isn't really unprecedented, kind of a a breakdown or a drift away from these things. Those of you that might be watching this that lived during the 1960s and 1970s, you saw a similar breakdown during that period. I, I wasn't born until after that breakdown, but you may have witnessed that and you watched the breakdown of morality and ethics and civility in the culture. But when that happens, and you can see cycles of this in history, even recent history, 
there is always a reaction to those breakdowns. There's always a response to those breakdowns. And at this moment, here in 2021, as we're approaching the end of the year, coming up to 2022, we are seeing responses and reactions to this breakdown in our culture right now. One of the reactions is what sociologists have called the big sort. Now, what is the big sort? Well, there's a lot more to it maybe, but the, the basic idea is that a lot of people are uprooting themselves and their families and they're moving to other parts, other regions, other states in the country to try and find other people who are more like-minded with them. And so people are self-selecting or sorting to kind of gather together with people that are more like-minded um, and want to raise their families the same way. So we're watching this happen right now. And a lot of this is a response and it's a reaction to the breakdown of civility and morality and ethics in our culture. That's what's happening when we are watching all these people move to other places throughout our country. They're just kind of sorting themselves according to people that might be a little bit more like them. Now, in the midst of these things, I find myself constantly returning to the thought uh, and what should my response be to all these things as a Christian? How shall we then live? And as a Christian, my response is to be informed by the scriptures. So with all of that kind of as a, you know, a preface to this message, I want to return to uh, what is probably my favorite book in all of the scriptures, the book of Philippians. And Philippians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul nearly 2,000 years ago to a church that was facing an increasingly contrary and antagonistic culture. And Paul, when he wrote this letter, he was himself facing challenges. He was at the very moment that he wrote this letter, he was a prisoner in the city of Rome. And he was facing political opposition and he was you know, not really sure, not really confident about what was going to happen next in his life. And so because of his faith and witness for Christ, he's in the challenge that he's in. And the people at the church in Philippi or the other churches that Paul wrote to during that period of time, we, we call his letters from that period of time, his prison epistles or his prison letters. He's writing to people who were also going to be facing opposition for their faith and their witness in Christ. So Paul did not know what the outcome of this whole situation was going to be. He wanted to return back to Philippi and to visit his friends and his church family there, but he recognized that that visit might not come to pass. Now, looking back in history, we know that ultimately it did. He was released from what is called his first imprisonment when he wrote the letter to the church at Philippi. He's released after that first imprisonment. He probably did visit the church in Philippi, but eventually he did find himself back in Rome and back in prison and was eventually uh, beheaded as a martyr for Christ in about AD 66. So, so he didn't really know what the outcome of all of this, his trial was going to be. And he understood that the outcome might mean the end of his life. And ultimately it did. And in the midst of this, in, with this as the context, he writes to the church at Philippi and he writes these words in Philippians chapter one. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those are powerful words from the Apostle Paul. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His attitude there in those words in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21, that is the attitude of a man of faith and faithfulness. He says, my desire is that 
I would get out of this troubling situation, that I would be freed from this situation in prison. In fact, he even tells the church in Philippi just prior to what I read from Philippians chapter one, he says, according to my earnest hope and expectation, I'm gonna be released by your prayers and by the supply of the Holy Spirit. So his desire is that he would get out of that troubling situation and his expectation and hope, whether he did or didn't get out of that situation, was that he ultimately would be a witness for Christ and that Christ would be exalted in his life, whether he lived or he died, because to live is Christ and to die is gain. So those are spectacular words. And that is why when we read those words from Paul, you know, whatever the outcome, if I die because of this trial that I'm in or I'm released and I'm able to continue to go on serving the church and planting more churches and teaching the scriptures, he says, it doesn't really matter to me what happens because to live is for Christ and to die is gain. It's that kind of mindset that made it possible that Paul could say, as he wrote, I believe to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or later in this very book to the church at Philippi, he tells the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter three, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern for our citizenship is in heaven. So Paul's mindset was, I'm gonna serve the Lord as long as I'm here, but if I die, that's gain because I'm gonna be with the Lord because my citizenship is in heaven. So those are powerful words. Remember, Paul could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So for you at this moment, sitting watching this message, maybe you're watching it on your phone, maybe you're watching it on your TV, maybe you're watching it on Sunday when it releases or it's several months from now, as you are sitting in the situation that you are in, maybe you're troubled by the situation that you're in. Paul was certainly troubled by the situation he was in and other Christians were troubled by the situation that Paul was in. So you might find yourself in that circumstance right now. And I want you to think about this question. What at this moment is your outlook? As you sit at this moment, as you look at all of the chaos of the last 20 months due to COVID, as you consider the intractability of the big problems that our culture is facing, as you think about the seeming inability of our politicians to face and to deal with all those big problems that we as a culture face, problems in business, problems in the economy. Just this last week, we received news that the consumer price index, it went up 8.6% over October of last year. So we all experienced the increase in prices and difficult in shipping. So problems in business, problems in the economy, racial tensions we're constantly being told are a major problem in our culture. You know, so business, economy, racial issues, and, 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 and. Go down the list. There are so many different things that weigh on people. So at this moment, looking at all those things, and I'm assuming you're probably a person who keeps up on things that are going on in the world. Maybe you read the news or listen to podcasts. Those things can weigh on you. So what is your outlook? At this moment, you kind of gauge your outlook. Are you hopeful or are you hopeless? The answer to the question, how shall we then live? I would suggest it will differ significantly depending upon your outlook. So Paul's outlook was, whether I live or I die, it's gonna be for the Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain. He had that outlook. And the outlook that you have, it will dramatically affect the way that you answer the question, how shall we then live? Is your confident expectation at this moment that Jesus in the future is going to transform your lowly body, that it will be conformed to his glorious body, 
according to the working by which he is able to even subdue all things to himself. That's what Philippians chapter 3 says. Or is it that you're hyper-concerned and burdened by all the things that are going on in this world? So Paul's confident expectation was in the Lord and in the future that he would have with the Lord in eternity. He knew that his citizenship was in heaven. He trusted that dying was not a finality, but death was a transition. I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons that so many people in Western culture are so fearful because of COVID is because they don't have any hope of being with the Lord in eternity. They don't have a citizenship in heaven. And if your only hope is this world, then you are going to be significantly affected by downturns in the economy, or you're going to be massively, you know, taken out by the possibility of a pandemic. So if your outlook is that this world is all there is, you're going to be discouraged and pretty hopeless. But if your outlook is the outlook of the Apostle Paul, my citizenship is in heaven and God is going to transform this lowly body that will be conformed to his, his glorious body according to the same power that was at work in Jesus when he rose from the dead, then that's going to totally affect how you live. And the answer to that question, how shall we then live? So Paul's mindset and the framing of his focus it dramatically altered his response to the troubling circumstances that he was going to. And I think that it's safe to say that Paul's circumstances 2,000 years ago when he wrote the letter to the church at Philippi, his circumstances were dramatically more troubling than yours and mine. He was in a situation where he was not really sure that he would live for another year, that he would be able to see his friends at the church at Ephesus or the church at Philippi. And this exhortation that Paul gives here, you know, and his, his outlook, his mindset, it's not unique to the Apostle Paul. Last week, Pastor Mark talked about Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. And Abraham and all of the men and women of faith in the Old Testament, they had a similar confident expectation. And because of the confident expectation that they had, the hope that they had in the Lord, that's how they could face difficulty. That's how they could respond to difficulty correctly. And this is the whole foundational sentiment of those who are listed in what's called the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. The faith-filled and faithful men and women of the Old Testament had the same mindset as the Apostle Paul, where he kind of comes to that saying, to live is Christ, to die is gain, my citizenship is in heaven. We see this so very clearly in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, Beginning in verse 8, we read these words. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance afterwards. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Look at that in verse 10 and think about it. Their focus was not on this life and what they might inherit in this life. His focus was for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him, God, faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man... And him, as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. 
these all died in faith, these men and women of faith in the Old Testament, having not received the promises in this life, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They're looking for something beyond this world. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. That's what Pastor Mark talked about last week in Genesis 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. And he concluded, Abraham did, verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Enoch, all the different people that are listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, they had this mindset, the very same mindset that Paul had in Philippians chapter 1. To live is Christ, to die is gain. This world is not my ultimate home. My focus is on something that God has promised to me in eternity. And so because they had that outlook, that affected the way that they lived. So how shall we then live? Knowing all these things, thinking about all these things, how shall we then live? Well, th this is key. My faith determines my outlook. I put my trust in Jesus Christ, just as Abraham did. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 15, verse six. He followed God by faith. My faith determines my outlook and that outlook alters my mindset and transforms my behavior. My conduct in this world, my behavior in this world is completely affected by my trust in Jesus Christ and the outlook that changes as I trust in Jesus Christ. When I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I now have hope, a certain hope of some great future and it changes my mindset, it transforms my behavior. So in Philippians, Paul is writing to try to equip the church at Philippi to equip and transform those Christians because Paul is a pastor and that's what pastors do. They are given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So Paul's trying to equip them and transform them. And reading Philippians carefully, it becomes pretty clear that the Christians at the church in Philippi had some issues, just like every church does. They were not a perfect church. They were a great church, but they were not a perfect church. So what were some of their issues? Well, they had issues of immaturity. They had issues of division very similar to our churches today. My discouragement, my grief, as I look at the church today, it, it stems from the reality that we have a lot of division, we have a lot of immaturity, and so did the church 2,000 years ago. There's no perfect church, but God wants to transform us. So Paul's wanting to see a transformation. And so there were some issues of immaturity, issues of division. It's kind of under the surface in Philippians, but if you read through Philippians carefully, then it becomes very, very clear that there were some problems there. And so Paul is writing to the church there to deal with that carnality. And that's why this book has application for us um, at this point in time, because the church at Philippi had issues of division. They had issues of immaturity. We have issues of division. We have issues of immaturity. Paul was writing to them to equip them and transform them. And so if we take these words to heart, if we consider these words, then we will see transformation for us as well. So all of that is the backdrop that brings us to the book of Philippians chapter, day, to, uh, chapter one today. 
So we're finally there. Philippians chapter 1, if you look at the scriptures with me in verse 27, Paul says this, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So if today you have faith in God, if I have faith in God, then as a result of that faith in God, I have a proper outlook and right mindset, and I have a confident hope in God of what he's going to bring me unto, my citizenship is in heaven, what he's gonna bring me up to, unto in the future, glorification. If I have that faith in God, proper outlook, new mindset, confident hope, then how shall we then live? What should my behavior be like? And this is something that we've been talking about, I've been talking about a lot this year. Um, that we have been transformed, we've been justified by Jesus Christ, we have the hope of glorification in Jesus Christ. Right now we're in this gap between justification and sanctification. This is the gap of transformation or sanctification where God wants to transform us. How shall we then live? Right now, practically speaking, Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our conduct ought to be characteristically Christ-like. Let me say that again. Our conduct ought to be characteristically Christ-like. I ought to align with Christ's character. As God is working in me by his spirit, as I am working out my own salvation with fear and trembling, I ought to be aligning with the teaching of Christ and with his will. And if you are not sure what that practically means when I say that our lives ought to begin to align with the character and will of Christ. If you don't really know what that means, then it is an indication that we need to get to know what Christ is like from his word so that we can begin to follow him, that we can begin to imitate him. The scriptures are what reveals to us what God's nature and what his expectation or his will is. So if I wanna know what I ought to look like, then I need to read the scriptures so I can learn what Jesus is like and learn what it is that he desires me to do. So Paul, though, in this passage, he expands or explains, if you will, what he means by conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ, providing us some, some things to think about, some food for thought, some things to chew on here. So what are the particulars of a conduct that aligns with the nature of Christ? What are the practicalities of conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is a reputable conduct. What, what is it? What are the qualities of that? Well, one of the things that Paul says is that you stand fast in one spirit. This is an indication that you are conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, that you stand fast in one spirit. Another one is that you are like-minded with one another. A uh, third one that he gives to us is that you are working together for the faith of the gospel. And then if you skip ahead and just read in your Bibles there in verse 28, then you find that one of the other things he says is that you're not intimidated by opposition. So there are certainly far more things that could be said about conduct worthy of the gospel, but at least included in the long list of things that you could probably say are things that are fitting or those things that befit a Christian are the things that Paul lists here. Unity of the spirit, unity of mind, and a unified labor together. That we are working together for the gospel. So this is what Paul is writing here and 
these things that he writes are a consistent theme in the New Testament. We're going to look at more of them next week, not just from the Apostle Paul, but from others in the New Testament where he gives these things, unity of spirit, unity of mind, and a unified labor in Christ. This is a consistent theme that we find throughout the scriptures. Christians are to work toward maturity and oneness in Christ. This is so important. If I'm a Christian, I've been justified, I have hope of glorification as I'm in this gap between justification and glorification as I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind and being sanctified by the Spirit of God and by His Word, then as a Christian, I need to work towards maturity and oneness in Christ. In part, this is what Jesus was talking about when He told His disciples, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another in John's Gospel, chapter 13, I believe it was. So stepping back just a little bit from the scriptures here in Philippians for a moment, think about the church in America. And when I say church in America, what I mean is consider the local churches that make up the church in America. Why am I and many other church leaders discouraged at this moment? because the dominating features or characteristics of the local church are not the characteristics of maturity and oneness and love. So if that's true, if the characteristics of local churches right now are not maturity, oneness, and love, what should we do? How shall we then live? What can be done? Well, written about the very same time that the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church at Philippi, he wrote another letter to the church at Ephesus. And Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. Just listen to the similarity of what we just read back in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Then written about the same time, Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through you all and in you all. Paul says to the church, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. The hallmarks of mature Christian love are humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and unity. And in addition to those five, we could probably come up with a whole lot of other things that we could say. But at least the hallmarks of mature Christian love are humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and unity. We're going to see some more of this next week, but as a preview to what we are going to talk about next week, Paul highlights many of these same things as he continues on in Philippians. I know I'm jumping back and forth between Ephesians and Philippians, but let me read to you the passage that follows what we're looking at in Philippians 1.27 today. Look at what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Now I'm going to resist the temptation to jump into those words right now. I'm going to talk more about Philippians chapter 2 next week, but I'm sure that you can see the connection between what we read in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 and what we read here in Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through chapter 2 verse 4. There's a lot of similarity and connections, but this is a consistent theme in the New Testament as it relates to maturity. You see, maturity is far less about how much you know the Bible. It's far less about Bible knowledge or even how gifted you are or talented you are. It's far less about Bible knowledge or spiritual gifts or um, far less than having to do with the things that you have, wealth, or uh, it's far less than taking big risks of faith as sometimes people call it. So maturity in Christ is far more about humility and gentleness, patience, forbearance, unity, and love. And I'm sure that you may see the connection, if you've been following along with us as we went through our series, The Disciplines of a Disciple, the connection between these things and the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, so forth. So there's a connection. Maturity in Christ Jesus is far more connected to the fruit of the Spirit and things like humility, gentleness, patience, unity, love, forbearance. So what I want to do as we begin to close today is to circle back around and to bring this home to something that is, um, shall we say, uber practical. If you were here a few weeks ago as I was sharing about sanctification, I shared that it is God's desire that I, that, that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the scriptures and that we would begin to display or to show in our daily lives what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's what we read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. There Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may show what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So it is God's desire in sanctification that you begin to be transformed and that you would show in your daily life what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So in this work of sanctification, as we are working out our salvation, I shared with you several weeks ago that God has given us his Holy Spirit as our helper to help us to walk in this. God is working in us to will and to do his good pleasure. And he has equipped us with many different tools to make it more likely that we will be transformed. Among those tools are the body of Christ, the local church. Among those tools are prayer. As we pray, God begins to transform us. And then one of the other major tools is the word of God. So God has given us his word as a tool. So if you were here a few weeks ago and I talked about the word of God being a tool for our sanctification, I shared with you one of the ways that you can use God's word in your daily life. And I talked about the tips for Bible study, T-I-P-S. And the tips for Bible study are, you know, we, we read the scriptures for the truths that it teaches. That's the T. The truths are the principles that are there. And then I, in tips, I examine myself in light of those truths. And then P, I pray in light of how I've examined myself. And then I step forward with the Spirit's help. The S is the Spirit's help to be able to walk these things out. So we have some truths or some principles here in this passage from Philippians. Some of the hallmarks of Christian maturity are humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, unity, and love. That is the principle or the truths of scripture. So what we have there, if you were here several weeks ago, we have there the, the plumb line, the plumb line of doctrine. So here we have the plumb, lob, plumb bob, 
and the scriptures reveal to us the truths and the principles. The, the hallmark of Christian maturity are things like gentleness, patience, forbearance, unity, and love. So the scriptures establish the, the true line of doctrine. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's useful for doctrine. So it establishes the true line. So there we have the, the principles. So the hallmarks of Christian maturity are patience and love and so forth. Now I, that's the truths, I examine myself. How well do I stack up? How well am I doing with humility? How well am I doing with patience? How well am I doing bearing with other people that I disagree with? How well am I doing with being unified and at peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I in alignment with God's word that you know, the hallmarks of Christian maturity are things like patience and forbearance and love and unity, or am I out of alignment? So if I'm out of alignment, then what do I need to do? Well, I look at the truths, I examine myself in light of those truths and those principles from the word. If I found that, find that I'm out of alignment, then I need to pray. And so we bring our failures and our faults and our sins and all those things to the Lord and in prayer, and we confess those to the Lord. So, you know, John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So I take the truths of scripture, that the hallmarks of Christian love are all of those things that I mentioned. Um, things like humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and unity. I examine myself, and then if I find that I am not exercising patience, or I am not being gentle, or I am not being humble, then I come to God in prayer, and I pray, God, would you forgive me for being arrogant? Would you forgive me for being unkind? Would you forgive me for not having self-control? And God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then I may need to pray for a, a petition, a supplication. God, would you give me your patience? Would you give me your self-control? Would you give me your love in this situation, your peace? God, help me to have your patience with that person. Help me to be at peace with those people in my life. And then finally, T-I-P-S, so the truths or principles in the passage, I examine myself, I pray, confession if I need to, and supplication for God's help to be able to do these things. And then the S, I step out with the Spirit's help to walk in these things. This week, after you've examined yourself in light of the truths of scripture and you prayed, this week, who are the people that maybe you need to talk to, to apologize for your impatience or for your arrogance? Who do you need to be reconciled to after having been separated from them because of anger or frustration? You know, Paul talks about forbearing with one another, bearing with one another in love. So Maybe you haven't been bearing with one another in love. So maybe it's one of those things where you say, God, help me by your Holy Spirit's power to reach out to that person this week so that I can walk in rightness or righteousness. The word of God is inspired by God and it is useful for doctrine, for reproof. It exposes where I'm out of alignment, for correction, brings me back into alignment, and for instruction in righteousness so that I can walk in rightness before God, righteousness before the Lord. So this is what it looks like practically to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling as God is working in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So in answer to that question, how shall we then live? Well, the scriptures give us some indication how we ought to live. Conduct yourself, Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourself 
in this manner. And so as I look at those things, I have to examine, am I conducting myself in this manner? And if not, I have to confess, God, I've not been walking in a way that is honoring to you. You may know the Bible really well, but if you're not walking in a way that is honoring to God according to his word, then you are out of alignment and God would call you to repentance. He would call you to confess it and he will forgive and cleanse you of any unrighteousness, but his aim is to transform us so that we would be the people of God living in a way that honors God here in this world that is in chaos. And it's possible that the world is just gonna continue to be in chaos until the Lord calls us home. So in the midst of that, we need to be a bright shining light of those who have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. May it be that God causes thing, these things to abound in our lives this week. Father God, I do pray for, for us, your church, and, and maybe some people who are watching who have not yet trusted in you. Lord, I pray that you draw them by your spirit, that they would put their trust in you and that they would experience your justification and that they'd have the hope of glorification and that they'd begin to experience the work of sanctification in their lives. But I pray for the church that's listening to this message. And I ask God that you would do a work by your spirit and by your word in us of transforming us more and more by the renewing of our minds that we would display in this world what is that good and acceptable and perfect will. Lord, do a work in your church, we pray. Cause us to shine lightly in the day in which we live, in this dark time. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.